Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. My dear cardio nerds, this is Amit Goyal. Join us on a new adventure as we journey through the maze of clinical practice guidelines. In this series, Decipher the Guidelines, we will take a deep dive into the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines, focusing on similarities and differences from the American guidelines. This is a multidisciplinary collaboration between the CardioNerds, the ACC Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease Section, the National Lipid Association, and the Preventive Cardiovascular Nurse Association, developed with a mentorship from Dr. Eugene Yang. Friends, CardioNerds is a fellow-founded independent educational platform. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Do be a nerd and spread the word on social media and help others find us by reading and reviewing the show on your favorite podcast app. And hey, hope you're enjoying the intro music, custom mixed for Cardi Nerds by student doctor Hirsch Elhens, aka DJ Elhens, medical student at USC and Cardi Nerds Academy intern of House Thomas. All right, it's time to get nerdy. The following question refers to section 4.3 of the 2021 ESC Cardiovascular Prevention Guidelines. The question is asked by Dr. Mariam Burkhardarian, answered first by medicine resident Dr. Ahmed Ghanim, and then by expert faculty Dr. Kim Williams. Dr. Williams is chief of the Division of Cardiology and is professor of medicine and cardiology at Rush University Medical Center. He has served as president of ASNEC, chairman of the board of the Association of Black Cardiologists, and president of the American College of Cardiology. So let's dive into some questions. Mrs. B is a 56-year-old African-American woman with a past medical history, significant for type 2 diabetes with hemoglobin A1c of 7.6 and hypercholesterolemia. Her calculated atherosclerosis cardiovascular disease risk score today is 12.5%, and her BMI is 24 kg per square meter. She's concerned about her high cholesterol levels despite being on a statin, and feels that her diet is not healthy enough. She is interested in making dietary changes to help reduce her cardiovascular disease risk. Which of the following recommendations is appropriate? Choice A. Sodium restriction to less than 3 grams per day will be of no benefit because she is not hypertensive. Choice B. Isocaloric substitution of saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat is associated with the most reduction of coronary heart disease risk. Choice C. Dietary fiber intake is associated with GI benefits, but has no cardiovascular risk reduction benefit. Choice D. Supplementing diet with vitamins A, B, C, and E helps reduce atherosclerosis cardiovascular disease risk. So, Ahmed, what do you think? Thanks, Miriam, for that great question. Actually, here, the correct answer is B. The risk of coronary heart disease is reduced when dietary saturated fats are replaced with other foods having similar caloric values. The greatest reduction was observed when saturated fats were isocalorically replaced with polyunsaturated fats with a 25% reduction followed by monounsaturated fats, 15% reduction, and carbohydrates from whole grains with a 9% reduction in risk. This is a class 1A recommendation in the ESC guidelines. 
However, it is a Class 2A recommendation in the 2019 ACC AHA guidelines. It's also important to mention that increased trans fatty acid intake is associated with increased coronary heart disease risk. A regulation of the European Union Commission has set the upper limit of trans fats to 2 grams per 100 grams of fat. The ACC AHA guidelines recommend that the intake of trans fats should be avoided and gave it a Class 3 recommendation, meaning harm. Choice A regarding sodium restriction is incorrect because dietary sodium restriction is recommended not only for control of blood pressure, but also for reduction of ASCVD risk. In a meta-analysis, salt reduction of 2.5 grams per day resulted in a 20% reduction in ASCVD events with a relative risk of 0.8. Reduction of salt intake is a Class 1 recommendation in the ESC guidelines compared to a Class 2A recommendation in the 2019 ACC AHA guidelines. Choice C regarding dietary fiber intake is also incorrect because a 10 gram per day higher fiber intake was associated with a 16% lower risk of stroke with a relative risk of 0.84 and a 6% lower risk of type 2 diabetes with a relative risk of 0.94. A high fiber intake may reduce postprandial glucose responses after carbohydrate-rich meals and also lower triglyceride levels. The Mediterranean diet is rich in fiber because it includes high intakes of fruits, vegetables, pulses, and whole grain products, and is actually a class 1 recommendation. Choice D regarding vitamins and supplements is also incorrect, because while vitamin supplementation has been associated with reduction in ASCVD risk in observational studies, interventional trials have failed to show any benefit. So my main takeaway from this question would be that a healthy diet is recommended as a cornerstone of CVD prevention in all individuals, independent of their underlying comorbidities. Replacing saturated with unsaturated fats, reducing salt intake, and choosing a more plant-based diet that is rich in fiber can lower risk of CVD. Dr. Williams, what's your perspective on the dietary modifications to reduce ASCVD risk for our patient? So first of all, uh, it really is to be applauded that you guys are looking at this and that the guidelines are not just being relegated to the world of academia where it was actually said at a meeting the other day, a handful of physicians look at them, they immediately forget about them and they don't promulgate them, they don't affect anything. I took umbrage at that, having participated in authorship of three different ACCHA guidelines, nuclear, hypertension, and then most recently the prevention, specifically the nutrition section that you're dealing with here the parallel one that you mentioned and ACC. And then I realized he was right. That is, we go nowhere. We need programs like yours to try to get the, the guidelines into people's hands so that it'll affect the lives of our physician colleagues as well as the patients for whom they serve. So with that as a background, I very much applaud. I do have some comments on them. We will differ in some very minor variations, but if I were to just sort of pick them apart just a little bit, I would say on A, United States versus Europe has had this thing going on for a long time. It started with the American Heart Association saying that, you know, 1,800 milligrams of sodium is about the most that you would need. And anything above that is going to induce hypertension and have a bad outcome, even if you're not hypertensive. Whereas the hope, the trials in Europe, specifically Salim Yusuf doing 19 countries, the pure trials said that, oh no, if you look at urinary excretion, four to five grams, that's 5,000 milligrams of sodium was the optimum amount. Uh, we had multiple meetings. He happened to be president of the World Heart Federation when I was part of the presidential team at ACC. And we went back and forth about it. And, you, and it was uh, good to see that American Heart really taking them on. 
And I think we came to the conclusion that our populations are a little different and that if you're a little bit more active, then maybe you can tolerate that much sodium and have a good outcome. However, in the United States, I think the AHA's recommendation for less than 2,300, optimally 1,800 was great. And I should say that what we came down on for blood pressure was really a 1,500 milligram limit for the hypertensives. And that's our ACCHA 2017 guidance. Skipping over, uh, well, actually be the correct answer, I think is very well stated. What it's really based on is that 27% decrease in mortality if you can actually substitute the dietary saturated fat for polyunsaturated or uh, monounsaturated fat. No question about that. The questions all arise from people who seem to have some industry relationship, and it's really hard to see that butter is back and see the cover of Time magazine and people being told that they can eat the things that they really truly love and grew up with because they're not harmful, because that doesn't go with the data. So if anyone really questions that, there is a nice 2017 American Heart Association presidential advisory, particularly about saturated fat, and all of the literature is splayed out for everyone to see. And I hope everyone will pay closer attention to that, like the answer. I have to admit, though, that there's this one little sort of uh, vegan group over in Santa Rosa, Chad McDougall, who, who put in one of those those little skewer note lines that you never forget. The fat you eat is the fat you wear. Yeah. And so it's a tough one to deal with because if you are overweight, it probably is something that should be lessened in your diet. However, if you are eating fat and you're not having a problem particularly with weight, then just please make sure that it's polyunsaturated or monounsaturated. They both lower mortality, both lower cholesterol. And so that would be the hope there. I have to comment on C, fiber is really important. You know, we've had a lot of data and I'm hopefully it'll come up over and over again whenever we're talking about nutrition is that in the last really 18 months, but if you go back in the literature, it's probably been happening almost for a decade. The focus on the microbiome, there is nothing that changes the microbiome more than getting rid of animal products, particularly red meat, and at the same time, increasing fiber in the diet. And changing the bacteria in the bowel, it turns out that the microbiome really determines all kinds of things. And it's almost not fair to talk about chronic kidney disease, which is promoted by red meat through the microbiome and TMAO levels, trimethylamine and oxide, give credit to Cleveland Clinic for pointing that out. But it's also heart attacks, stroke, platelet aggregation, and heart failure death, all are related to the microbiome. And when we're talking about it, the recognition that Alzheimer's disease and Parkinson's disease and degenerative neurologic diseases are all related to the microbiome. So the fiber is doing much more than we thought. Oh, we thought just take some of your cholesterol out because it's fiber. It makes your bowels regular. Uh, no, this really has a huge effect. We should be really focusing on fiber as much as possible. Okay. Lastly, the whole idea of taking those vitamin supplements. You know, some of them actually have not done badly. B vitamins are water soluble. They're probably not going to hurt you. I've seen plenty of people, particularly vegans, because you know, not everybody knows that you can get uh, vitamin B deficient if you're on a, a completely plant-based diet. That's because there's only three ways pretty much to get a lot of vitamin B12. One is to eat dirt, which is where it comes from, the bacteria in the dirt. Another one is to eat an animal that ate dirt, and most vegans find that abhorrent. And then take a a vitamin supplement, which has B12 in it. And I see people taking a thousand milligrams a day because they're vegan, 
and they'll come in with massive B12 levels because you can store it to some degree and then the rest of it's going to just make your urine very expensive. But the bottom line is that that doesn't seem to be any toxicity to high B12 levels. Fine. Okay. But vitamin A, particularly males over 60, people have to remember that randomized trials show that high levels of vitamin A supplementation increase cancer risk. Okay. And so vitamin D isn't for free. That is the more you take, the more you break. I don't know if you saw that literature from a couple of years ago, completely counterintuitive, but that was women. It was like more than 60,000 units a month. And most patients are taking the 2000 or greater a day, which is more than 60,000 a month. And so that increased fracture risk, you know, everyone thinks that it can't be true, but the data was pretty clear on it. So I probably would steer clear of extra, extra, extra vitamin D, even though it seems to help with COVID outcomes, not as therapy, but maybe as prevention, a little bit of hints, no randomized trials. Vitamin E, we always have to reserve. And you know, it's just a little embarrassed about the things that we have to flip on in cardiology, which there's so many in my career, like HDL, happy cholesterol, not true. Can Art and Copenhagen both show the higher the HDL, the higher the mortality. You got to stop saying that. Well, on that list, there's a lot of things, you know, the fibric acid derivative, the niacin, things that increase HDL. But there's also this whole idea of antioxidants. And when you looked at the HOPE trial, which did the right thing, don't just accept some small observational trial. As you pointed out, you've got to have a prospective randomized trial that's done objectively. And when you do that, all of these things seem to blow up, particularly vitamin E in the HOPE trial. It definitely increased the heart failure incidence and heart failure hospitalizations. And so it's something that we would not recommend. Oh, we had to take a lot of vitamin E prescriptions back. Okay. Sorry. That was a potpourri of everything you talked about, but it's a lot of history. Unfortunately, some of it's embarrassing, but you know, all you can do is learn and, and stay up with the latest evidence. That was awesome. And thank you so much, Dr. William and Ahmed. Thank you for having me. Boop. Boop.